Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Psoriatic Arthritis and COVID-19, Conference Highlights from ACR Convergence 2020, is brought to you by Forefront Collaborative and supported by an educational grant from Lilly. This replay of a live broadcast focuses on understanding some of the findings presented at ACR Convergence 2020 and for providing insights into the evolving treatment landscape for psoriatic arthritis. With new and recent evidence uncovering new treatment options for patients with psoriatic arthritis, the therapeutic landscape for the disease has changed dramatically in a relatively short period of time. But what does the latest research suggest, and how might this new information impact our treatment approach, especially in the time of the COVID pandemic? That's what we'll be exploring today. Hi, I'm Dr. Madeline Feldman, and welcome to this special CME live broadcast on ReachMD. Here with me is Dr. Phil Meese, who's going to share some of the highlights from this year's American College of Rheumatology's conference, ACR Convergence 2020. Dr. Meese, Phil, welcome to the program. Thanks, Madeline. I'm very happy to be here. A programming note to remind you, our audience, to submit questions via the chat feature on whatever platform you're viewing this live broadcast. Dr. Meese will address a few questions immediately after our discussion. Well, let's get the ball rolling. So start off, Phil, what can you tell us about some of the new evidence on biologic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs in the treatment of psoriatic arthritis? So there were a number of uh, very interesting studies. This one, the first one, uh, is a practical one uh, for making decisions uh, in our daily care of patients. So here, this is data from the second part of the control trial. What was the control trial? Well, uh, what it, uh, the point of it was, was to look at patients who were on methotrexate monotherapy for PSA. And let's say they were having an inadequate response at 15 milligrams. So the question is, do you intensify treatment with methotrexate going to 20 or 25 milligrams, or do you add adalimumab at that point? So in the first 16 weeks of the trial, this was studied, and the, the end point was achievement of minimal disease activity criteria. MDA is a set of seven items, including tender and swollen joint count, and enthesitis assessment, patient pain, and so on. Uh, and if you achieve at least five of these seven items, then you're in a state of MDA. And it's been shown to well correlate with good quality of function and quality of life. So what was shown was that if you added adalimumab, nearly half of the patients achieved this state of MDA, but if you intensified methotrexate, only 13.6% did. So that was the key message from part one. What happened in part two? So the, the patients uh, who achieved MDA in either arm of, of the first study generally maintained that. But what about the patients who did not achieve MDA uh, in the adalimumab plus methotrexate arm? What happened there was if we went to weekly adalimumab, we could achieve MDA. And so it showed that increasing the dose frequency uh, would help. Uh, in the group that was on methotrexate only, it was found that if you added adalimumab as expected, they would then achieve MDA. 
We also showed in one of the arms that if you were on adalimumab plus methotrexate and drop methotrexate, you could maintain the MDA state by just continuing adalimumab monotherapy. And as you know, lots of our patients prefer not to take methotrexate for various reasons. So I think this gives us some practical advice about how to manage our patients. Um, the next slide shows a, a study uh, in which ixekizumab, an IL-17A inhibitor, was used uh, in uh, a the SPIRIT P2 trial where patients were enrolled who were TNF inhibitor inadequate responders. And this is three-year data which shows uh, that patients were able to achieve these targets of therapy that we're aiming for, such as minimal disease activity or something called the DAPSA disease activity in psoriatic arthritis, low disease or remission criteria. And again, nearly 50% of patients were achieving this. So in either ICSI dose arm, we found that uh, the, these results were maintained and sustained. And so I, I think that this gives us confidence about the effectiveness long-term of uh, use of an IL-17 inhibitor. And the next slide uh, demonstrates uh, the results of one-year data uh, with a new uh, agent for us uh, called tildrakizumab. This drug is an, a P19 IL-23 inhibitor, which has been approved in treatment of psoriasis. And here we're showing the results of a phase two PSA study out of one year. And depending upon the dose arm, you see, again, uh, very high levels of ACR20 response that are shown here, and also achievement of this target of, of treatment that we're aiming for, the MDA, uh, in somewhere between a third and a half of the patients. Uh, so showing this new mechanism is also effective. Well, you know, as always, we have to sort of balance out efficacy with safety. So what about the safety of the agents that you just talked about, like ixekizumab, adalimumab, tildrakizumab? Are there any new findings or safety signals with these drugs? So let's take a look at some of the data that's either from the abstracts that I just spoke about or from additional abstracts. The first one is from the SPIRIT-P2 three-year data which showed uh, that uh, about 6% of the patients overall in the study uh, discontinued due to AEs, which were typically either infection or injection site reactions. I consider this a relatively low rate over the course of three years. And uh, the data otherwise uh, showed relatively low rates of uh, of infection, serious infection. We didn't see opportunistic infections. We didn't see a malignancy signal. We don't see a, a VTE signal. Um, so there were there have been a couple of cases of IBD uh, in the IL-17 treated patients. Uh, in uh, the control study that I just referred to, uh, serious adverse events across all the groups were less than 5%, and the safety profile was more or less what we expect from adalimumab. There is, a, as you know, a spirit head-to-head -head trial comparing ixekizumab versus adalimumab, and looking at 52-week data from that particular trial, we did see an interesting difference 
between ixacizumab and adalimumab. There were more serious adverse events uh, with adalimumab, about 12% of the patient population versus 4% in the ixacizumab. Some of this was infection. Some of it was, I have to say, was not actually related to the medicine. It would be like a road vehicle accident or bike accident or something like that. But um, nonetheless, there was a little bit more in the way of infection on the ADA side, but on the ICSI side, there were more injection site reactions and a couple of cases of IBD. With tiltrichizumab, turning out the IL-23 inhibitors really are very good from a side effect point of view. Low rates of serious infection, no IBD, no uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, no malignancy signal. So I think with this new group, we're going, uh, and we'll see a little bit more with guzelcomab shortly, uh, pretty pretty good safety record. Well, that sounds good. We've talked about tildrakizumab, which is IL-23, and you just mentioned another IL-23 inhibitor called guzelcomab. I understand you, you did participate in a number of trials addressing its safety and efficacy. What can you tell us about guzelcomab? So guzelcomab uh, uh, is uh, also a P19 IL-23 inhibitor. Uh, and the uh, uh, it was, uh, its phase three trials were DISCOVER 1 and 2. Uh, one uh, was a mixed population with 30% TNF inhibitor inadequate responders. And DISCOVER 2 was a purely CSD marred population, a little bit bigger trial. And what has been shown uh, with all of these, uh, with these two trials and the patients in them, is uh, uh, extended data uh, uh, out to one year, which shows really good benefits in things like work productivity, sustained resolution of enthesitis, as well as dactylitis. We saw ongoing high thresholds of uh, achievement of remission and low disease activity. Uh, an interesting uh, as, uh, st- sub-study, uh, which was reflected in an abstract in which we looked at the BASTI and other uh, uh, measures of spine symptom improvement, was a st- sub-study in which 30% of the patients in both trials were shown to have sacroiliac joint x-ray abnormalities consistent with sacroiliitis. And in those patients that had elevated BASTI scores, elevated spine pain scores, we saw that there was a significant improvement of symptoms with guzelcomab treatment versus placebo. Why is this is interesting? Is because we've seen a previous trial with another P19 IL-23 inhibitor, risenkizumab, where they did an exploratory trial in ankylosing spondylitis and failed to show difference from placebo. So there had been sort of an idea, maybe the IL-23s don't work as well in the spine. So this opens up the question mm-hmm. again, and it's, uh, it gives us a, at least the need and desire uh, to have better understanding about IL-23 inhibition role in, in the spine disease of, of psoriatic arthritis. Uh, there's also an interesting uh, sub, uh, aspect, and that is it's the first uh, set of trials where uh, the FDA has recognized fatigue to be in the label. And we know that fatigue is a big deal to our patients. Uh, some of it is related to inflammation, some related to other factors. But uh, this clearly showed improvement of fatigue. 
And the overall safety was similar to what I just mentioned with tildrakizumab, very little in the way of serious infections, no IBD, no malignancy signal, and so forth. So I think this is going, the IL-23s are going to be a solid addition to our armamentarium. Oh, that's interesting about the fatigue that they've added. That's, uh, I like that. That's good. Um, well, let's switch back over to the IL-17 inhibitors for a minute. Um, which studies can you highlight for us in addition to those that you mentioned with ixacizumab? So there were several IL-17s to mention. One is secukinumab, which is an IL-17A inhibitor, but also there's bimacizumab, uh, not yet available to us, which is an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor. So covering a little bit more of the IL-17 landscape. With secukinumab, we saw a number of, of uh, studies that were either uh, addressing the long-term extensions of previous studies in PSA, such as Future 5, uh, where we saw extended data uh, with high rates of achievement of remission or low disease activity as measured by various um, outcome measures um, and showing sustainment over time. Uh, there was some data that showed that when it was used as a first-line biologic agent, it had really excellent results. Uh, and also there was an interesting sub-study that showed that it improved dactylitis, which we know is a biomarker of uh, uh, more severe disease. Uh, there was further data on the secukinumab uh, versus adalimumab head-to-head -head trial in which they were had similar uh, robust uh, achievement of minimal disease activity uh, and uh, remission. And then with bimacizumab, uh, we saw sustained uh, uh, results in both the articular domains as well as skin domains, improvement in patient-reported outcomes such as quality of life and function, uh, and uh, a similar safety profile overall as we've seen with other IL-17s. So that will be a very interesting drug that has a slightly broader uh, dimension of effect. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to a special CME live broadcast on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Madeline Feldman, and with me to talk about psoriatic arthritis and key highlights from ACR Convergence 2020 is Dr. Phil Meese. A quick reminder for you, our audience, to submit your questions via your viewing platform so Dr. Meese may address them during our post-discussion Q&A se session. Okay, so Dr. Meese, continuing with our discussion... What can you tell us about the clinical trials presented at this conference regarding targeted synthetic DMARDs, such as the JAK inhibitors in the treatment of psoriatic arthritis? So, Madeline, the main new news at this meeting, uh, as well as the uh, just uh, previous uh, ULAR meeting, uh, was data on upadacitinib. Many of you know upadacitinib because it's been introduced for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, already approved. Uh, it's a uh, relatively specific JAK1 inhibitor in the dose uh, that we're using it. Uh, 15 milligrams is the dose that's approved for RA. Uh, and here we're seeing data uh, from the select PSA1 and PSA2 trials, the phase three trials, where both the 15 and 30 milligram doses were looked at. Uh, in the uh, PSA1 trial, there was an, also an adalimumab reference arm. And interestingly, uh, the 30 milligrams did slightly better than ADA and the 15 milligrams is very similar to it. Here we're showing, uh, again, uh, you're 
sound like a broken record, uh, but this target of treatment that we're aiming for, which is either uh, remission or inactive disease, uh, and, and so it's called in some of the measures, or a low disease activity, uh, which is the MDM or minimal disease activity. And you can see there uh, that these, uh, these are achievable uh, endpoints. Uh, the patients are highly satisfied. These are measurable, except for the past S, these are measurable in practice. And so I think that it gives us it's uh, another solid entry uh, into our armamentarium once it's approved. Uh, and so I think that that's, that's very exciting information about upadacitinib. Uh, in the uh, next slide, uh, we are seeing uh, data with filgotinib, another relatively selective JAK1 inhibitor. Uh, and in this uh, particular sub-analysis, we're, uh, we're looking at the clinical domain of enthesitis. And it was shown uh, that, um, that there was a high degree of achievement of resolution of enthesitis uh, at the 16-week um, uh, mark, the primary endpoint. And then as you tracked it out to 52 weeks, an increasing number of patients achieved this response. And I think of enthesitis as being a tougher treatment uh, domain to treat. Uh, it's not well vascularized. Um, there's a lot of mechanical pressure on it, especially at the Achilles tendon or plantar fascia. Uh, and I th uh, so I think it's not surprising that we need to have a little longer to see the full benefit. But up to three quarters of patients are, are achieving that level of benefit. And then we saw, as a late breaker, uh, the introduction of ducravacitinib. I say that several times in a row to get it, ducravacitinib. It's apparently ducrava for short. And so um, uh, this was a phase two trial uh, with, and we've already seen one phase two trial with psoriasis. And in that trial, we saw a PASI 75 rates of, of 69% uh, higher than what we've seen with some of the standard JAK agents. And this is because TIC2 appears to have, uh, among other things, uh, an ability to inhibit the cytokine IL-23, but also IL-22. It has to do with the configuration of the JAK and TIC molecules at the uh, at the cell surface uh, cell surface so the um, uh, it, we anticipate that there are going to be very high skin responses and, and effective in the dermatology world for psoriasis potentially uh, as well as in the rheumatology world and in the in the PSA trial we saw good solid rates of improvement of ACR responses enthesitis, uh, 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 as well as function, quality of life, the kind of thing we're ex we expect from a, a solid uh, JAK inhibitor. So this is going forward. And the other thing that will be interesting as we get more data will be how does it do uh, safety-wise compared to the uh, other JAKs. In these trials, we didn't see um, really anything in the way of serious infection uh, or uh, BTE. Um, we anticipate uh, that the drug may help inflammatory bowel disease. So it's going to be interesting to see whether there is some differentiation from a safety perspective as well with this new entrant. Ducrava, okay. 
Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, there's no denying that COVID-19 has added challenges to the already complex management of rheumatic diseases. What do you think are some of the practical implications of the studies presented at ACR Convergence that might help us treat psoriatic arthritis in this whole COVID-19 pandemic? There were a number, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, it was exciting to see. Uh, and as you see on this slide, I'm not going to go through all the details of these various studies, but I would say the majority of them came down on the side of saying that the advisement that we've received from the ACR and ULAR organizations that if we dial back to um, uh, April when we were um, uh, struggling with answering all our patient calls about do I have greater risk for developing COVID if I'm exposed, given my underlying autoimmune disease? And do I have a greater risk for having a severe course of it, including hospitalization and, heaven forbid, intubation uh, with, uh, uh, because of the uh, background or because of the treatments that I'm on? So the, our patients were desperate to know uh, whether or not they should be um, stopping their medicines to decrease risk uh, and uh, decrease uh, severity. So the, uh, the, the, uh, the these are uh, these abstracts on the left hand side uh, reflect uh, various registries, either country specific re registries, or as you uh, know, there is a global. Uh, rheumatology COVID registry, where rheumatologists from around the world are entering patients who've developed COVID. And there are several take-home messages from these. One is that as far as they can tell, although keep in mind these are not carefully controlled uh, studies, uh, there doesn't seem to be a higher rate of either infection uh, because you have a disease like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or um, um, necessarily a more severe course, including hospitalization, uh, if you're on one of our treatments. And so the general advisement seems to be sound that uh, if your patient says, should I stop medicines, you should say no. Uh, however, if they develop COVID, that's another story. But if they haven't, uh, then I would say no. It's better to keep your disease under control rather than to have it flare, because there's some suggestion that uncontrolled autoimmune disease may be more of a garden for COVID to, to land in. Uh, and the other uh, is that um, if you flare and have to use prednisone in doses greater than 10 milligrams to control it, then that's a baddie, uh, and that increases your risk. Now, on the other hand, there were a handful of studies, again, that were either center-specific or country-specific that suggested the converse, that there was a little bit more risk by having a background autoimmune disease and that there could be a slightly more severe outcome by being on the drugs that we use. So I think the full answer isn't in but I would say that the preponderance would be to practice safe, um, just do the safe things that you know to do, 
uh, try to uh, shelter in place as much as you can, wear masks, uh, and, uh, and, and wash your hands. And there was even an abstract that suggested that maybe one of the reasons why some of the better outcomes were observed had to do with the fact that autoimmune disease patients are more likely to protect themselves. Uh, they're, they're more likely perhaps to stay at home, to follow the rules, to wear a mask, to have their spouse go out and do the grocery shopping uh, and uh, maybe get their boss to let them work from home more readily. And that this could also uh, contribute to some of the better outcomes that have been seen. Well, lastly, Dr. Meese, are there, are there any key take-home messages you'd like to share with our audience today? Sort of a short summary. Yeah. So I think that we've seen quite a bit from uh, this uh, uh, ACR meeting. First of all, I think it was done pretty well. I, I, there were not many, that many glitches that I saw uh, from a technology point of view, and I, I really appreciated jumping from one presentation to another, one poster to another. I was busy. I had 46 abstracts in this meeting, so I, I was just busily responding to chat and getting to uh, uh, interact that way with colleagues, and so it was, that was not bad. In terms of PSA, I thought, uh, uh, as we've seen in recent meetings, PSA is coming into its own. Lots of interest in pathophysiology, lots of interest in new mechanisms of treatment, lots of interest in how to measure and get to a state of remission or low disease activity. So this is a good time uh, for a person involved in PSA research and interested in learning about how to manage PSA. I, I think that we're seeing some maturation of the field in that we're seeing a few head-to-head -head trials, and I think that will encourage people to do more in the future, which I think helps clinicians make decisions. I think uh, there's some in, there were some intriguing combined primary efficacy endpoints like the spirit head-to-head -head where they combined a skin result along with a, a joint or arthritis result. And so simultaneous achievement, uh, which was, a, I think, a more holistic approach. Uh, there, we might see more combination trials in the future to try to achieve even better outcomes. Uh, and uh, we saw a lot more in the way of interest in how our treatments might impact extra articular manifestations of the disease. We've seen a lot of interest in axial PSA. Is axial PSA the same as or different than uh, axial SPA or ankylosing spondylitis? And there's some suggestion that maybe so. There might there, we certainly have seen radiographic differences, uh, some clinical differences, maybe some genotypic differences, and maybe some treatment outcome differences. And I think we're going to see uh, uh, more coming in about um, the impact of COVID uh, and that we'll learn more about that. And hopefully at some time we're going to get start uh, seeing some data on uh, what happens with vaccination. Well, it was quite a broad landscape you went over for us, but um, thanks for sharing those key takeaways. But before we wrap up this live broadcast, we're actually going to be answer answering a few questions from our audience. So let's get started. So the first one I have here is, was there any new evidence presented about gender differences in responses to therapies for psoriatic arthritis? 
Very interesting question. So, um, a little background is that in uh, some of the clinical registries, like uh, I'm involved with the U.S. Corona Registry, we have seen in registries where they're all comers uh, without restrictions of people not having background fibromyalgia, et cetera, that there is some suggestion that women may not, uh, may have more severe disease as measured by, uh, by composite measures that include patient-reported measures like tender joint count or pain. Uh, and then also we've seen some data that suggests that they may not respond as well to certain to treatments or may not achieve minimal disease activity as readily. So there was an analysis of the EXCEED head-to-head trial between adalimumab and secukinumab where that was seen. At baseline, women had a little bit more in the way of uh, severe composite measures and uh, a little bit harder time achieving some of the high threshold uh, measures uh, like MDA. So is this immunobiology differences? Is it a bit more fibro uh, in the female population? There could be a number of factors, but I think they all probably contribute. And so I think this will be looked at more carefully uh, in upcoming uh, trials, and we might look at this in practice. Yeah, those gender differences, those were quite interesting. Um, We have one more question. You talked a a little bit about this already. Um, Can you highlight what is new about axial psoriatic arthritis? And when they do PSA studies, this is my question, do they they ever differentiate those that are axial versus peripheral or or is it just all lumped together? So historically not. It's all lumped together and we have depended upon ankylosing spondylitis trials to teach us about medicines and their effect. But I think that we're now recognizing that there are differences. Uh, And uh, for example, the patient may not have sacroiliac changes, but may have prominent cervical spine changes. They're they're more women. They are less likely to be HLA-B27 positive. They have more peripheral disease. Uh, They have asymmetric sacroiliitis when it's present. And now uh, there's a suggestion there there might be some differences in response to treatment to our various medicines. So I think this will be an area of future uh, investigation and much more depth. Absolutely. I wish we had more time, but that's about all the time we have for today. But before we go, I I really want to thank you, Dr. Meese, for for helping us better understand some of the findings from ACR convergence on psoriatic arthritis and providing insight into the evolving treatment landscape for psoriatic arthritis. It was great speaking with you tonight, and um, thank you once again. Thank you, Madeline. You've been listening to a replay of a live broadcast about psoriatic arthritis and COVID-19. This activity was brought to you by Forefront Collaborative and was supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.